I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Max Sklar is the creator of The Local Maximum, a weekly podcast exploring current topics in tech, math, and political philosophy. Over the past five years, he's hosted many discussions and debates with top engineers, authors, and entrepreneurs. While working at Foursquare, he wrote their City Guide rating system, and he's currently working on an open source database system called newmap.ai that is attempting to rethink from the ground up how engineers and scientists build data stores, algorithms, and artificial intelligence. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad that we're both glad that you're here. Now, you write on your website, localmaxradio.com, quote, I go over techniques to understanding the world of AI and machine learning that an average person can understand. And I show how to get our algorithms to be more flexible through the same process we use on people, end quote. I recently spoke with Dan Scoggin. He's the co-founder of Great Hearts Academy, a network of classical education charter schools. And he said in our interview, quote, there's something in every human heart that longs to do math, end quote. And while I have a huge amount of respect for Dan's work and mission, I feel based on decades of personal experience that this does not necessarily apply to me. Thank you in advance, Max, for any technical handholding you may have to do during our conversation. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I think that's an interesting quote you said. People long to do math. I know that's true for me, or at least sometimes that's true for me. I know it's not true for, I would say, the majority of people, or at least they think they don't yearn to do math. But I think what that quote is saying is that people yearn to make sense of the world and sort of systematize the world around them and build a story about the world. If you want your story to make sense, if you want it to have some logical consistency, depends how deep on the rabbit hole you want to go, but eventually you're going to get to some kind of mathematics or some kind of pattern recognition. Now, I think we wanted to talk about how we could use techniques in machine learning to kind of think about the world. This was something that I realized when I started the podcast at a local maximum about five years ago, or wait, more than five years ago. I guess it's almost six years ago now, which is crazy. So I was working as a machine learning engineer at Foursquare, and I realized I had a lot to say, and I was behind a screen all day, and I wanted to start talking about the work that I did. And a lot of people, whenever you're in a job, they ask you, what do you do? And you try to explain it, and people glaze over. They don't really understand. So how do you talk to the average person about how does a machine learn? Let's set aside all the latest in terms of AI, which I'm sure we'll get to by the end of today in terms of what's happening with generative AI, whether we're going to get to a general artificial intelligence, what the pitfalls are, any of that. Okay, what if you're, you're sitting down and you're trying to write a program, which is ostensibly just a set of commands that you give a computer, a set of calculations, how do you get it to actually learn? And so it turns out by studying this fascinating field of machine learning, and taking out the math sometimes, and you have to kind of learn the math to understand how it's working. But once you understand that, is when you take out the math and you understand what the machine is doing, it does tell stories about how we humans can think about the world in terms of our own language. I want to go deep on machine learning and AI in general with you, but it sounds like from what you're saying and from my more surface level research that to truly be able to program a useful machine, a useful AI you have to be able to understand human beings first. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be able to understand human beings. But I also flip that around and say that sometimes when you teach machines how to learn, you are also learning about human beings in the process. I guess they come hand in hand. <laughs> yes, man and machine. Okay, let's start as close as we can to the beginning. Even before you knew you wanted to go into this field of work, what would you say has been your life's through line since you were a kid? Oh, that's an interesting question. I always had a lot of interest. I was one of those people who was pretty good in school. I would sometimes get frustrated if there was a lot of nonsense being taught in class, but it wasn't like, oh, I, I don't want to be here. It was always like, I really want to learn this stuff. And I got really into my math classes and science classes and even my history classes, which is really interesting because I'm probably even more interested in that stuff today. And I was always drawn to the computer. You know, I was programming pretty early on. We all did QBasic and that kind of thing. I used to have a little entrepreneurial streak, like I would make little programs and hand them out in disks. But then, as now, I was very bad at selling them. I was just good at giving them out. So this is something that I'm trying to figure out how to fix, because now with NewMap, I'm still just giving it out. It's open source. But the through lines for me is taking a look at 
all the mathematics and all the philosophy and being like, okay, there's got to be some algorithm for figuring this out. There's got to be some different insight into looking at this problem that you think about right off the bat. And I'm trying to think of a good example of that. One of them might be in terms of layers of abstraction. When you first learn mathematics in, in grade school, you're often doing something more along the lines of rote memorization of mathematical operations. Then you go one layer of abstraction on top of that, and all of a sudden you have algebra and you have algorithms associated with algebra. That all of a sudden opens up a whole new world for you. And then it begs the question, how do you represent information? In the world, because that's what we're really doing as humans is we're trying to represent the information that is coming in. What's the best way to do that? It turns out to be a very interesting and profound problem because the way that you represent the information coming in ends up affecting how you interpret it and that affects what decisions you make. There's something you said right at the start there, like having an allergy to things that don't make sense. Are you familiar with rationalism or Scott Alexander, Slate Star Codex, that sort of thing? Yeah. So I can't say that I'm an avid reader, but one of the things I talk about a lot on the podcast is Bayesian inference. Maybe I'll just try to explain the basics of Bayesian inference in a minute, which is actually, it's a very simple idea. It's you have some model of the world, and then you have some new information coming in, and then you update your model of the world. Okay, great. We kind of all understand that. That's the scientific method. What Bayesian inference does is it takes the mathematical representation of all these things and systematizes it so that we can actually be consistent in the way that we do these things and machines can be consistent in the way that we do these things. So Bayesian inference is a very rational way of looking at the world. And I use Bayesian inference in terms of just work, like statistical work and some of the models that I built at Foursquare and elsewhere. But there's this rationalist community that has grown up around it. In some ways, my sense is they try to take it too far, but I'm interested in hearing what your sense is. I've read some of his essays. I'm not hyper familiar with his work, but I would say in terms of the rationalist community, I'm almost exclusively familiar with Alexander. A few of his essays really stood out to me, but the question behind the question, I suppose, is it just seems like basically anything Silicon Valley adjacent or related to Silicon Valley seems to attract a lot of fans of things like rationalism. And I'm just wondering if there's something that goes hand in hand with the kind of first principles Bayesian thinking that is required to do the kinds of things that you do in your line of work and just a general interest in trying to solve all of society's problems through that line of thinking. One thing that you discover as an engineer, as a scientist, is that Bayesian thinking is extremely powerful and the scientific method is extremely powerful. And so I think there's a sense <laughs> for, from us humans that we tend to take a tool that is really good and we tend to push it until we overuse it. That maybe could be the case with Bayesian inference and the scientific method as well, where you tend to get tunnel vision in terms of your favorite technique. But I would say that Bayesian inference is my favorite technique. I love to systematize problems in that way because it often helps solve the problem and understand the problem that we're facing. It's interesting to give some examples. One of the canonical examples in Bayesian inference is a medical test problem where you could have a test where it seems very accurate. It's 99% accurate that you'll have a certain disease, but then it turns out that the disease itself is rare. So when you do the mathematics, which admittedly is simple, but it's actually tough to do through audio, is that it sometimes turns out that even if you get positive on this test, which is 99% accurate, then it turns out that you're more likely to have this disease than you were before, but you're still not very likely to have it because it's so rare. And this, by the way, drives me crazy when I look on Twitter and I see people giving information about COVID, about vaccines, whatever side you're on in that issue. I just see a lot of statistics being thrown out there where I'm like, well, this was obviously cherry-picked, which I think people sometimes do on purpose. So it's a very good way of making sense of the world. When you get down to it, when you get down to the base philosophy, which is something to keep in mind if you want to use this powerful tool and not be dangerous with it, is that the ideas of Bayesian inference and the ideas of scientific method more generally, we weren't born with them. Humanity has only had them for a few hundred years, so they grew out of more trial and error. So you have to use it with humility, is my main point there. Does any of this relate to the Monty Hall problem? I have read that over and over again, and I'm still confused as why you're supposed to switch doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is related to the Monty Hall problem because you've been given new information about the question. So Monty Hall, the basic issue there is that you have three doors and let's just say there's one door that you want to pick. Let's say there's a million dollars behind it. You pick one of the door and you said, I, I think that's the door. 
And then the game show host says, okay, well, I'm going to open up one of the two doors that you didn't pick. Oh, look, it has nothing in it. Do you want to switch doors? And I guess the idea is that when you first start, you have a one-third, one-third, one-third chance that the prize is behind each door, the indifference principle. We shouldn't favor one door over the other because there's no reason for us to do so. Okay, so we pick this door. Now the game show host opens up one of the two other doors to show you which one is empty. If you picked right initially, then if you switch, you're going to be wrong. But if you picked wrong initially, of which there's a two-thirds chance, now if you switch, you're going to be right because he eliminated one of the two other doors. So this is actually a very counterintuitive problem. I think the trick is just play the game with a friend and you'll see. Uh, (laughs) You'll see that it works. Regardless of there's three doors and there's a left door, a center door, a right door, and you pick the center door and the host opens the right door to reveal that there's no prize behind that door. If you pick the center door, pick the left door. And if you pick the left door, pick the center door. And the answer to that question is always statistically, it is more in your interest to switch doors regardless of whichever door you picked. And if I read the answer and the explanation behind it enough times, I can feel my brain just beginning to grasp it, but there's almost something emotionally intuitive, but nonsensical within me that wants to reject that makes sense (laughs) because it just doesn't compute, but it's just an interesting problem. One of the ways to think about it is each door has a certain amount of probability associated with it. It starts out one third, one third, one third. When the game show host opens up that empty door, that's a third. We all agree that one should go down to zero because now there's 0%. So now we have a one-third, 33% of probability to spread out between the other two doors. And there's a very good argument why it goes to the door that you're not picking. Well, let's bring this back into the realm of the more applicable. It's kind of an abstract question, but I think it's going to lead well into the bulk of our conversation. When it comes to doing complex work, like the kind that you do and have done at Foursquare and other places, what in your view is more important, doing the work or explaining the work to the public? Well, my first inclination is, first of all, thinking about the work is the first of planning the work and having a very clear understanding of what you're trying to build. So let's go back, and this is a while ago now, but let's go back to the idea of venue ratings at Foursquare. Now, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed these days that the Foursquare app still uses our algorithm because they haven't really made a lot of updates. So I I, I wish they have, but you know, the Foursquare app was very popular for a very long period of time and I still use it. It still works extremely well for finding stuff around your city. The goal at first was to make a rating one to 10. How good is this place? And what you want to do when you build a product is not necessarily find mathematical perfection, even though that's what a lot of us are inclined to do. But you really have to gather the product requirements, the business requirements, and you have to make those trade-offs. And sometimes you have to sacrifice on your accuracy or what you want to do in order to make those trade-offs purposely. But I think while making those trade-offs, it's not a good idea to just haphazardly make up a number. So you really have to have a good story for why you're doing what you're doing. In the example of venue ratings, you have to ask questions like, how is this going to fail? People use Foursquare very casually. They just want to find a restaurant out. So what's going to cause them to say, this doesn't work? What's going to cause a business to say, this is being unfair to me? So I think in that sense, yes, explaining to the public is very important. Once you're at that point, explaining it to yourself is very important first and having some internal logic. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do a very good job in explaining it to the public. So understanding how something works, like for the creator, for the developer, understanding how and why something works is important when you're developing it. To fast forward a little bit to something like artificial intelligence, something I've heard over and over again from some of the leaders in this space is that there's a decent amount of artificial intelligence where the creators of the AI don't understand how the AI is learning some things. So in your view, if understanding how something works is of vital importance in developing that thing, whatever that thing might be, what happens when all of a sudden, perhaps for the first time, I don't know, ever, when you're developing something extremely critical, perhaps life-changing for all of society, what happens when all of a sudden the creators of a thing no longer understand how that thing is doing what it does? I think they still understand how the system is working. For example, like if you ask them to tell you about their architecture and you ask them to explain how does it learn from this architecture, 
which just means how are all the pieces connected? Where does the data go when it comes in? They're going to understand all of that. They're going to understand why it works on a high level. You're building a black box automatically, and they don't necessarily understand what's going on on every little bit. It would take a lot to understand, okay, well, how does it learn the relationship between these two words? It's reading a lot of documents, and it sees the orderings of words, and it does statistical models on all of those. And we sort of have a good idea of how it works. We just don't know exactly what's going on inside the black box. I don't think this is very different from biology or even chemistry, where scientists can understand what cause and effect are, and they can understand, okay, how do I get the human body to respond in this way? But they don't know exactly what's going on underneath, and there still needs to be a lot of research. So when I say you want to understand how something works, you always have to define the boundary of where you're going to understand. Like if you're going to build a web application, you don't have to understand every layer of abstraction down to what your machine code is doing. When you learn a new programming language, CS101, your first program is to have the machine print out Hello World. You know the command for that. You don't have to know how it's compiling that down into machine code, how the circuitry in the machine that's running this is configured. You don't have to know all the physics behind it. So I probably should say everybody who's in a knowledge field, which is everybody, I think every single job of the person listening has a job of incorporating knowledge and organizing knowledge and transmitting knowledge. That's pretty much every job that's out there, is my argument, has to figure out what the boundary is, what their framework is in terms of what they're going to understand. But let's see if we could take this back to AI, because I feel like you're thinking about something a little bit more specific here. Yeah, let me expand a little bit on my question, because I think it goes back to the importance of both doing and explaining the work, right? So back in 2021, I had a couple guests on to speak either about COVID and vaccines or relatedly about the importance of health messaging around those things, right? So I had on Dr. Monica Gandhi, she's a professor of medicine and the associate division chief of HIV infectious diseases and global medicine at UCSF. And I brought her on to talk about the COVID vaccine and mRNA vaccines and what they are and aren't, because there was a lot of fear mongering and misinformation around those topics. And one of the things I really want to hammer home with her, along with a couple of other guests that year, was that I personally feel that one of the huge failures of 2020-2021 was a failure of explaining to the public in ways that could be easily understood and really marketed, because I work in advertising, and I feel like a lot of things that should be treated like marketing campaigns are not, and that the health community or the AI community and other various communities that are doing really important but sometimes scary sounding work, that they would have much more success if they treated their field of work like the same way that Apple announces a new product in ways that the average person can understand. Like, I don't need to know how a system on a chip works to understand that my iPhone can now scan a document and show me my resume in 10 different ways, right? And so when it feels like every news article that's coming out about AI is a fear-mongering headline, I feel like it is the duty of people working in that space, leading that space, to maybe not say things that sound scary. We don't know how this thing is doing what it does. If, to what you're saying, Max, they kind of do. And like, if they were getting a beer with their fellow developers and engineers, they could say something like that and everyone at the table would understand what they mean. But if someone let's say like me, who's interested in AI, who uses ChatGPT like every day, even when I, who I'm probably more knowledgeable than the average person who doesn't use AI regularly, when I hear a phrase like that, it worries me. Only when you, on this podcast right now, expand on what they mean, do I start to feel a little calmer. So I think that gets to my earlier point of like, what's more important? Is it making the AI, to use one example, or is it once the AI is made, making sure that every step of the way you're explaining it in a way, not that just is logically sound, but in a way that an average person can understand it so they know when to or when not to fear it. Right. I do believe that there are circumstances where you invent something technically and then it could be used in ways that you're not expecting. And so that could be a danger. It's usually also a boon to innovators. Like, okay, let's talk about these learning machines. Or let's just talk about generative AI. Some of these researchers, they spent decades trying to figure out how to get the machine to learn all these things. They shouldn't be surprised when they got it to work. Here's the thing. They know how it works, but they don't know how it's going to be used. And this is the same thing for innovators as well. You think of something like Facebook or Twitter, right? They had some ideas on how they were going to use that. 
all of a sudden these services end up with a life of its own. I interviewed David Auerbach a, a few months ago about a book he wrote called Meganets, how like some of these huge web services are out of control from the standpoint of the people who invented them originally. I think there's a discussion to be had here in terms of some of these inventors invent what they set out to invent, then their invention is put out into the world, and then they lose control. Then the innovators take over and they say, okay, now we're going to do all of these things with it. And you have what's called permissionless innovation, which could be scary to some, but permissionless innovation is the lifeblood of the economy. And that happens in probably almost every field, right? I mean, there's this famous quote that I'm paraphrasing here in art and entertainment, the fields that I work in, which is that once a piece of art is finished and displayed, it belongs as much to the viewer as it does to the artist originally. And this is why feedback screenings for movies before they're released to the public are so vital, right? You think I've written this script, I've directed it, I've edited it. And every step along the way, I've been talking with the cinematographer and my fellow writers and the producer and the editor. And we all know what this movie is. We all have a really good idea. We've been editing it for months now, revision after revision. I'm very confident the audience is going to be on the same page as us because we're all on the same page. And then you screen it and you get a ton of feedback that's like, I have no idea why the protagonist is doing what they're doing. Or I didn't know that the woman 20 minutes in was the protagonist's mom. I thought it was his girlfriend or whatever. There are all these points that you thought were rock solid. I also do a lot of work in the gaming space as well. And you see this all the time where you'll see like speedrunners, basically people who are able to run through a game much faster than the developer intended because they find all these ways to like basically hack the game because they're attacking these levels and these problems from all these angles that the developer, just because they were insulated or are operating from a single point of view and surrounded by people operating from a similar point of view, never even thought to test. So whatever the field is, once you expose something to a wider public outside of the team that made the thing, you all of a sudden encounter a million different ways to think about it. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that must be frustrating for writers and storytellers. You could spend hours or years wordsmithing something and you think it's perfect. (laughs) And then once it comes into contact with the real world, you run into problems. I mean, that could be the limit of Bayesian inference as well, where even if you're building all these models, which work really well, they have to come into contact with the real world. Otherwise, even if your mathematics is right, your, your assumptions are skewed. Well, let's talk about something that you did at Foursquare. Aside from the City Guide rating system, you were at Foursquare for about eight years from 2011 to 2019. And in addition to building that City Guide rating system, you were also the lead engineer on MarsBot, an app that you describe as, quote, a character in your pocket that learns about you based on where you go and uses that to make recommendations, end quote. Originally, MarsBot was text-based, and then Foursquare later released an audio version of the app that worked with users' headphones. What was the problem that you and your team were solving for with MarsBot as it pertained to Foursquare and society more broadly? And how did you go about solving that problem? I think in terms of society more broadly, I think we looked at all of the consumer applications were available. I mean, I was working with the founder of Foursquare, Dennis Crowley, and I'm actually still working with him today. And I'm going to get into what we're doing next because it's pretty exciting and it's related to this. And so his vision was always like, okay, make cities that are easier to use, make software that helps people use their city. And that was similar to what I kind of like to build. I had worked on a lot of mapping applications and things like that. And I'd always been fascinated with exploring cities and just exploring new places. And so when we looked at the landscape of consumer applications, and it's still true, it's like, who is looking out for the interests of the user? And Unfortunately, I think that the market got away from us where all of the apps have over-indexed on either advertising or trying to get you sucked into the application for longer and longer periods of time, but maybe that are ways not necessarily in your interests. Think of it as kind of a casino game. Pretty sure I've spent more time on Twitter or X than is optimal looking out for my own interests. That is a problem. And so Here was an app that you don't have to use. It just wakes up when it's supposed to wake up. And hopefully, we'll design it to tell you something interesting as you're walking by when you want these updates. And I also think it was looking at the world from the standpoint of just always opening up your phone and having these apps, maybe something that's a little bit more lightweight so that you're not overburdened by technology. I kind of like the idea that technology fades into the background. It's helpful, but it's not adding work for you. 
kind of inspired by some science fiction too. And you have like heads up displays. And so the first version of that was text-based where we had built a lot of models at Foursquare. Compared to what we're doing today, these were more simple statistical models where, okay, we'd look at like the keywords at different places like a cafe. So I, I was able to rig it up so that when you walk into a cafe, it immediately texts you and you said, here's the best thing to order at this place. And it would tell you a little bit about something as you walk around. The second version, which we built in 2019 and 2020, which was a little bit stunted by COVID, was that we noticed that everyone is walking around with their headphones in or their earpods in. Okay, what if you had something that was a little more audio that could tell you a little bit of information about a place that you were at as you were walking around? And that's actually something that we're trying to revive. We just gave a presentation at Betaworks, which is this tech incubator in New York City a few weeks ago. And the demo is not quite available yet, but we're trying to build something a little bit like that. It's something where we're trying to build an application that's going to avoid the trap of being all about gathering and reselling your data and trying to actually build something for consumers, which sometimes it seems like it's an uphill battle, but I feel like it's a battle worth fighting. Your description of MarsBot lines up well with a description I read about it somewhere in one of the Foursquare blogs, which described it as a proactive walking assistant. I want to kind of hone in on that word assistant, because I feel like this gets at the core of a major problem to solve with virtual assistants. And I can speak about this from my experience in my early 20s as a human assistant. I was a personal assistant for 10 executives at a firm here in Los Angeles. And the best personal assistant I quickly learned was someone who not only quickly responded to a person's immediate needs, but could also learn to anticipate those needs. This is a big qualifier. Anticipating that person's needs meant being largely invisible. So like getting an executive's car washed because I could see it getting a little dirtier than he liked, or shopping for a Valentine's Day card because the holiday was right around the corner and I know he'd be too busy with work to do it himself. And yes, that sort of thing actually happened. But almost none of my job was me coming to my boss and suggesting things to him or asking him what he wanted. It was either him telling me what he needed me to do or me intuiting a need and just doing it. So while I believe that apps like MarsBot have a lot of value and they're operating within the technological limits of their time, they don't, to me, just based on my experience, feel like they fill the role of an assistant, at least not the ideal one we dream about hiring. Do you think we'll ever get there? Oh, so this is not a question about MarsBot. This is a question about trying to get the assistant that we need in life in general. Because MarsBot, and also the one that we're working on now, which is tentatively named BeBot, is really just solving a very narrow problem. It knows where you go, so it knows a little bit about you, and it tries to give you some helpful information. It is not your fully-fledged AI assistant that can do everything for you. I think there will be, uh, and there are applications <laughs> right now that can anticipate some of your needs. I haven't found any that are particularly good, whether it's a scheduling application or a work application or something like that. Software is still very much, I, as the person with an assistant, need to ask it to do something. And then it goes ahead and does that and not the other way around. Okay, let me think about it another way. Sometimes your software does do things for you without you needing to know. For example, your phone might download things that it thinks you might need later. Or websites and web servers will often cache information that it thinks that the users will need so that it takes less time to get it to them. So there is a lot of technology that is built around anticipating needs. But I think you're thinking about something a lot more specific and a lot more personal, and it's going to take a lot of creativity and finesse to get there. And I, I almost want to you know, use the example of a self-driving car where you could have a car that drives itself, but when can I put away the steering wheel and just fall asleep? Well, it has to be pretty darn perfect <laughs> in order to get to that level. And I think the problem with the assistant is if you have something that can generally do things for you, you don't want to hand over your social media or your GitHub account so it can start coding for you. You don't necessarily want to do that unless it is extremely good. And it almost seems like it takes some kind of artificial general intelligence in order to allow us to get to that level. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between narrow and general AI. Before we get to that, though, vehicle autonomy is something that I'm very interested in. For our audience, there's five levels, technically six levels of vehicle autonomy, zero being the lowest and five being the highest. Level zero is a car with no driving automation. Basically, it could be 
99.9% of cars ever invented from a Ford Model T to a Toyota Corolla. Level one would be standard cruise control. Level two would be where the car can perform steering and acceleration. The best examples of this would be like Tesla's enhanced autopilot feature or Mercedes-Benz's drive pilot system. Level four autonomy, which we do have some pilot systems operating currently. It's basically fully autonomous within a geofenced area under specific, usually ideal conditions. So a car would be able to drive without any human assistance within like a 30 mile radius that had been completely mapped out on a day with good weather. But level five, to your point, Max, full automation, which is when a car can basically drive exactly like a human in all weather conditions anywhere in the world, that's considered potentially decades away. Because I've heard this a lot with technical problems, getting 99% of the way there and getting the additional 1% of the way there to get to 100 can often take the same amount of time. Those two journeys can be equally difficult, even though one's 99%, one's 1%. And it seems like there's a similar thing going on with AI, which is now, I think, uh, if I understand it correctly, is only narrow. We don't have general AI yet. To use a relevant example, I typed your name into ChatGPT. I was like, hey, ChatGPT, like I'm going to be interviewing Max Sklar in a few days. I'm just trying to think outside the box. Do you have any ideas or questions you think I should talk with him about? And this is the really, really key point here. Nine out of 10 of those bullet points that it gave me all related to you. One of them said, you should talk with Max about city planning in Miami. I was like, what? I've looked at Max's LinkedIn and I've looked at his website and I've listened to some of his podcasts. I've never heard him talk about city planning in Miami. Well, turns out there's another Max Sklar who does city planning in Miami. But the AI just randomly looped this other guy in who has nothing to do with you and said it was you and what you did. And if I hadn't gone through the process of checking that, I would have just thought that's what you did. But I imagine that there are all kinds of answers that ChatGPT gives where if you're not intimately familiar or you don't do the legwork to double check it, that it could get a little or a lot wrong, but pass it off as if it's correct information. And that can feel in our era of ever increasing dis and misinformation as potentially dangerous as falling asleep at the wheel of a level four autonomous car. Think of ChatGPT as like a careless intern. You know, an intern can make that better, or any employee. Just like, oh, okay, I'll run some Google searches and I'll, I'll put it all together. A couple of thoughts on that. A lot of people think that artificial general intelligence just means like perfection. Like it's going to be able to take in data and it's just going to know everything that's going to happen and be able to predict the future with exact precision. I just don't think the world works that way. Another thing you mentioned about software 99% to 100%. Anyone who's run a software project knows that once your engineering team says they're 90% done, that's where the real fun begins. Even when you think you're 100% done with the engineering, then now how do we launch it? It's, oh, well, simple. We, we, we've planned for that. And then all of a sudden, it turns out there's a lot of things that need to be done that you didn't plan for. But the example that came to mind for me where we've gotten onto the other side of this is speech recognition. You could do speech recognition 20 years ago. It was fine, but maybe it was 95% accurate. And it just wasn't enough for some of the applications we have today. Now we have speech recognition and automated transcripts for podcasts and all this. And it's really helpful. It's not 100%, but it got over that hump of that last percent that you needed to make it worthwhile, which was very, very difficult and excruciating. Quick step back here. What would be the difference between machine learning and AI? Because I feel like these terms are thrown around a lot and sometimes interchangeably but I know that there's a distinction there. What is it? To think of machine learning as a subset of AI. So all machine learning is AI, but not all AI is machine learning. AI is a little vague in terms of what it is. It's essentially trying to make the machines do intelligent things. And so there's this saying in AI that once something is solved, it's not considered AI anymore. So for example, in the 20th century, network routing is a really hard problem. How are we going to solve it? You invent a bunch of algorithms. This is AI. But then after a while, it's not considered AI anymore. So that's a problem. Machine learning is a little more specific. Machine learning is the task of essentially having the machine write code or take actions for you based on data coming in. It's learning from the data that comes in. You've got to learn from something, and that something is called the data. So machine learning will oftentimes involve statistical models on the data. It doesn't have to. I guess it's still statistical, but it could do something that's a little more trial and error and say, okay, how am I going to perform best? And maybe it'll keep track of how it's performing. And so it's trying a whole bunch of different configurations and it's trying to figure out what works. So an example of AI that is not machine learning might be some kind of 
abstract decision-making algorithm or maybe some kind of interpretive system where it's a deterministic algorithm, but it's still at this point very powerful and still considered AI and not part of AI. But I think a good way for the audience to think about it is that at this point, most of the AI that we talk about these days has machine learning algorithms underneath it. And then we're also talking about the broader social implications of what are the AI applications that you can build on top of all these systems. You've said that machine learning algorithms rely on arguments from analogy in order for them to work. Can you describe what an argument from analogy is and how it's used in machine learning? Let's just start at the beginning. How do you know anything is true? That, that's epistemology. That's the basic thing that we do. How do you evaluate something? And it turns out that we humans need analogies to function. We need to know, okay, I'm in a certain situation right now. The last time I was in this situation, it went down like this. So maybe it'll go down the same way now. Obviously, if you're in the same situation, you don't always have the same outcome, but it has to be at least sometimes true. If it's never true, if there was never any proper analogy that you could make, then there would be no way that you could make any reasonable decision because there's nothing to base it off of. And so I think that humans, our minds are analogy machines. Whenever we try to learn a new concept or we try to read the news or try to understand something that's going on, we always try to make an analogy to something else that we are more familiar with. That's why we are really good storytellers, because those stories hopefully provide good analogies that we can then use to live our lives. That's a more philosophical basis of it. That's also the basis of the scientific method. If you hop forward a little bit in terms of scientific development, it's a randomized controlled experiment, like a proper scientific experiment. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to create a perfect analogy. You're trying to say, I have a extremely well-specified set of conditions here. And then over here, I have the control where I don't have those conditions in place, or maybe my control is the conditions, and then I change one thing, and that's my experimental group. And then I try to figure out what the difference is. And so I'm trying to create a perfect analogy. So when you have a machine that's learning, what it's trying to do is it's trying to find analogies from the data. It's trying to figure out, okay, this is what I see right now. Now I have to make decisions going forward, given the situation that I see now, how is it related to what I've seen in the past? So a good example, once again, let's go with autonomous vehicles. Let's go with self-driving cars. Most people have not been in very many accidents, whereas an autonomous vehicle system could have access to data from hundreds of thousands of accidents and collisions, and it might be able to use those to figure out what to do when it's driving the vehicle. So hopefully that'll work and hopefully that'll reduce the amount of accidents and deaths that occur. The main idea is as it's driving, it'll see what's going on in the road, see the configurations of vehicles, see how a certain car in front of you is driving. I often do that, you know, when I'm on the highway, hopefully the machines will be doing the same thing. Does this relate to the nearest neighbor algorithm? That's exactly what the nearest neighbor algorithm does. It takes a data point, which is to make an analogy to our analogies, that data point is the current situation. And then it asks, okay, what are some similar situations that I've seen before? And from that, it looks at nearby data points and says, okay, this data point might be similar to an average of what's nearby. Now, there's a lot of interesting questions that come up when you do a nearest neighbor algorithm, because it could be like, how do you tell how two things are similar to each other? It might be obvious in the context of the problem, I think in most cases, it's not very obvious in the context of the problem. The case where it's obvious, like we had a case in Foursquare where it was really obvious, where it was like, okay, we have data in terms of where people said they were at a particular point in time. And so I looked at a latitude longitude of this new person, and I looked at 10 people who told us where they were. They checked in the past who were near them, and all of them said they were at Grand Central Station. So we think this person is in Grand Central Station. What's nearest, it's just distance on the earth using latitude, longitude. So that's a pretty easy one. But once you get into something like image recognition or even more complicated marketing data, like how do you know two people are similar, then all of a sudden that becomes a more difficult problem. And that's one of the big problem with analogies. It's like, how do you know that an analogy is good or not? And you really have to use a lot of trial and error for that. With using argument from analogy and nearest neighbor, which all makes sense, right? Like the machine, the AI is looking at a bunch of data and then making conclusions from that data based on hopefully large data sets. But I'm wondering how we square that, which just on its face sounds benign, with humanity's larger social project of fighting stereotypes. To use one that could apply to you and me, 
If you were to give an AI a bunch of information about, let's say, violent crime statistics, it would come back saying, hey, based on the data we have, it looks like men commit more violent crime than women do. And that would be statistically accurate based on the data that we have. But then you and I, I don't know you that well, Max, but you seem like a pretty nonviolent guy based on my research. You and I might be like, well, hey, even if that's true, I don't like the fact that if I ask AI a question, it comes back basically besmirching me because I happen to be a member of this group. So how does AI balance using, let's say for the sake of argument, accurate data sets that allow it to then infer conclusions based on those data sets? How do we balance that need for AI to be accurate with, I think, society's need to judge every person as an individual rather than a member of a group? So two answers come to mind with this problem. The first is that I think sometimes these stereotypes, I'm specifically more talking about stereotypes that we see as harmful. I think that is more of a shortcut that our human analogy systems have taken, us versus them. We want to conserve energy as humans. So oftentimes we don't have time to consider all the factors and make judgments based on an individual. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I'm, I'm just trying to explain what happened. And so we come up with these stereotypes, which also could be in, in the form of these stories that tell us, oh, okay, this is how to prejudge people. When you look at it that way, I think there's one sense in which AI can really make this better, which is that now we have access to compute power and data power that is so much more powerful than we can do in our brains. And it's not just raw compute power. I think our brains have a tremendous amount of raw compute power, but we can deliberately infuse these machines with the ability and the resources to actually look beyond these kind of surface level attributes of people and to try to use the data more holistically. So that's one solution. It's not a, it's not a full solution, but that is one kind of optimistic vision. Now, there is sort of a problem with that is that, okay, well, what if that doesn't work? What if our algorithm still finds that we're judging people on attributes that we don't want to be judged on? In that case, we're going to have to, in some cases, try to say, okay, look, we can maybe sacrifice a tiny bit of accuracy to ensure, depending on what the application is, that someone is not going to be judged on these attributes. But then there's still another problem where... <laughs> Sometimes we say, okay, someone is not going to be judged on these attributes, but then the machine can learn those attributes from other attributes that it has. So let's take a simple one like gender. We say, okay, can't use the gender. Okay, but then it will use all the other things that it knows about someone, and then it can infer gender, and then it can use gender. So I guess my conclusion here, and I'm thinking a lot about this off the top of my head here, is that I think that there are some opportunities to move beyond stereotypes with machines, but there's also a lot of pitfalls that we have to watch out for. And we also have to think clearly about what we want. Yes. In your view, is there any role for the government to play when it comes to regulating what AI, and I suppose more specifically, when and if we're ever able to develop AGI, or artificial general intelligence, when it arrives? The Biden administration on October 30th released a basically an executive order stating the importance of regulating AI in order to make sure that it does well by society and civil rights and equity, et cetera. And speaking of, let's say, game theory, is there any way to regulate AI in a global marketplace in which countries are operating in an adversarial framework and each country is incentivized to advance their country's AI as quickly as possible? Like an arms race, right? Like the first government that hampers their country's AI development is the first country to lose the AI race. So it feels akin to the U.S. regulating its rocket production in the midst of the Cold War era space race. But it feels like there's going to be a need for some sort of regulation, right? If we go back to the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, it's yes, we wanted the Industrial Revolution to lift up people and in the quality of life, but we also didn't want corporations dumping toxic sludge into our rivers. So where is the line we draw when it comes to potentially regulating AI? Yeah, I'm not very optimistic about current calls to regulate AI or whether it's going to lead to good things. I mean, at least the example that you posed from 100 years ago, we can identify the problem. The problem is there's toxic sludge in the rivers, and we don't want there to be toxic sludge in the river. What is the equivalent problem these days with AI that we're trying to solve? First, we need to see what the compelling problem is. Just saying, oh, 
this is really useful technology and really powerful technology and we should control it. There are a lot of pitfalls with regulation. I mean, one is regulatory capture, where basically very few companies and research groups doing AI. And then what's going to happen is those are going to be intimately connected with the regulators. And so basically you're going to monopolize with a few, uh, a few players where the kind of central command is going to tell us, okay, this is how things should work. Not great from an innovative perspective, which this is still very new technology and we need that innovative base there. And also it might create more risk than it harms. So one of the fears is that this thing is going to get so powerful and it's going to get out of control and start doing bad things. But if that happens, our main defense against that is to have battling AIs. In other words, to have an open market where one company is doing AI, it has an AI that's doing something I don't like. Well, I can't defend myself as just a mere human. I need superpower intelligence myself. And I think it's good that there'll be some kind of a multipolar world here. But I don't know, if there's global regulation of AI, then you have a unipolar world. And then if someone decides to do something bad with that, then there's not going to be much that any individual can do about it. I'm a little concerned about it. Maybe you can identify some compelling problems with it akin to your toxic sludge. Maybe that problem is just data privacy or something like that. But that's something that's not really regulation of AI itself. That's more like personal data regulation. So yeah, I'd like to see much more specifics on, on what's being talked about. It sounds like what you're arguing for is similar to what we have with, let's say, hacking, where you have white hats to combat black hats. Yeah, exactly. And again, you have to have a specific problem, but let me try to pose a specific problem with AI and, and see if we can work through it. We're not quite at general intelligence yet, but a lot of people have said that generative AIs are going to have power, or they already have power to convince people to do things. And so... The extraordinary power of persuasion over, let's say, millions of people, that's a pretty formidable <laughs> power to have if you have access to these things. And so what would make it worse? What would make it worse is if it's, okay, we have regulation of the internet and social media, and now all of a sudden you have one faction trying to convince everyone of something through the AI and they have access to everyone and you have no counter narrative, you have no inoculation against it. Whereas if you have multiple AIs on Twitter who are at an arms race trying to convince you that A is right and the other side is trying to convince you that A is wrong, then so long as you have battling agents to try to convince you, then there's some kind of check and balance there. The best path forward is to have a culture of free speech for AI. Like the idea being with free speech in America, at least, is that the best way to combat bad speech is with good speech, not with less speech. Yeah, I've always liked to believe that's true. And I think that recently there's been a lot of inclination to say, well, the problem is people are believing all of these false things. And what can we do about it? We've got to ban it. We've got to stop people from hearing those things. And it is true that when people see or hear certain things, they can be persuaded and they can be persuaded to believe things that aren't true. But when you give people this power to just say, no, we're going we're gonna to block things, I just don't see that ending well. Whoever has that power, I, I see them using that for their own ends. I think it's better to have an AI standoff than to just have you know, an AI overlord. <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons that I'm wary of regulation in general, even while I realize that it's necessary in some circumstances, absolutely necessary is that history is rife with examples of already established near monopolistic companies that use regulation under the guise of benevolent intentions to make future competition nearly impossible. To a point you made earlier, you'll have a company that you know is already powerful and they'll go to the government and say, we need to regulate this industry because think of all the bad things that can happen. And then they'll help write the legislation that regulates the industry and that legislation will make it almost impossible for any new companies to actually start. So under the guise of telling the government, we need to regulate our space, they're in fact creating the very conditions that make it impossible for competitors to gain an advantage. To me, it's just the idea of regulating math always seems crazy. Like I was reading an article, and this, this is from a few years ago now, where the government of the UK banned some encryption technique, and then someone had to call them up and say, my textbook will be illegal once you pass this. <laughs> no, I think I would like to see us look at not necessarily AI in terms of like the algorithms that are being used or the mathematics or how to bring together all the servers and that kind of thing. Like not how, but what. 
What exactly is the outcome here? Yeah, to your point, one of the best arguments I've read against regulating, let's say, algorithms, for instance, is that at least in the United States, that would be regulating speech in the same way that if the government were to regulate what sentence I can write or what order of words I can write in that sentence. Similarly, if the government is trying to regulate a mathematical equation or a series of numbers that I write down, you are regulating my speech, even if it's not speech in the traditional form that we usually recognize as speech. Yeah. And there are certain things that you could say that are not covered by the First Amendment. You know, if you direct someone to commit a crime, And so maybe that's what those series of numbers are. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about pattern recognition machines. And it seems like training pattern recognition machines should be under the auspices of free speech. It certainly seems like being able to hide your speech through cryptography should fall under free speech, even if the underlying speech might be criminal. Because I just think that privacy and the ability to communicate without prying eyes is just very important in in modern society. Going back to the discussion of the virtual assistant from earlier, one of the things that most concerns me is that if we're going back to the the human assistant analogy, right? Not only when I was a personal assistant back in my early 20s, was I under NDA? If I had any juicy details to share, I couldn't share them anyway. Also, just like me as one individual, even without the NDA, there are a lot of unspoken social pressures that are in effect that are preventing me or pushing on me not to reveal personal information because of my social life or career prospects, etc. I think the thing that kind of doesn't exist in the world of AI is there's a lot of AI behind virtual assistants. These companies that run virtual assistants are these huge corporations that are not incentivized in the same way as a lowly individual to keep private things private. You know, it's one thing to tell a 22-year-old about your cocaine habit. It's another thing to tell Jeff Bezos via your Amazon Echo. And I wonder in that regard, if virtual assistants and AI, I suppose, will ever be as useful because how comfortable are the public going to be sharing intimate details if they're not sure if those intimate details are later going to be sold to a third party for advertising reasons? Another scary prospect is what if those things already know and they don't have to go and ask the people and ask them to share? There's a lot that these machines can infer about us. Well, this happened with Facebook, right? I remember a few years ago, I can't remember the exact context. Maybe you know it better than me, but I I remember there was some controversy because Facebook was making generalizations about users' race and gender based on groups they joined on Facebook, based on things they liked, based on pages they visited. And while these assumptions were often very accurate, The leak of this information that Facebook was doing this to infer immutable characteristics about its users, even if those inferences were usually correct, it upset people, I think, understandably, because they're like, well, wait a second, even if that is true at the group level, the fact that you're making these inferences and then using that to continuously train your algorithms, it can feel like a violation. Yeah, I've heard crazier things than that. Algorithms can tell if you have a mental illness and what type, just by the words that you type. Wow. I wonder if it can analyze my writings or our speech here and what it could come up with in terms of what our personalities are. There'll be a ceiling to how much it can infer, and it's unclear what that ceiling is. I was thinking of the self-driving car analogy, like, okay, if someone's swerving, can it use that video to tell exactly what's going on? Probably not exactly, but it could probably give better percentages than I can. Now, look, for people who have gone through the medical system and have had a hard time getting a proper medical diagnosis... This type of thing is extremely valuable. You want something that can look at all your data and even look at the way you talk and speak and be able to tell you, oh, this is what's wrong with you. This is how you can get help. And that's maybe one of the plus sides there where a lot of people who have been frustrated with doctors and the medical system can maybe be helped faster. Again, let's not pretend there aren't huge upsides. Yes. I guess it it can come down to how do you teach an AI tact? Because it's one thing if, like, let's say you are depressed. I've struggled with depression throughout my life and I've had really low points and really high points. It would be one thing if a close friend of mine came to me and was like, hey, Michael, I've just noticed over the last few months, something's different. And I know that you've struggled with this in the past and I just want to check in with you and see how you're doing if this is something you're struggling with currently. If they came to me and said that, I'd be receptive. But if, I don't know, a coworker or my barista at Starbucks was like, hey, are you depressed? Even if they were accurate, it would feel 
like a step too far for them to be talking to me about that. It's about time. It's about place. It's about who says it, when they say it, how they say it. And so it seems like there is a human element that needs to be programmed on top that tells the AI, hey, it's not just about how and when you know this information. And even if it is accurate, you need to know when and how to communicate it to the user. Yeah. I actually think that some of these language models are not bad in terms of trying to adjust the way that they use words to try to handle the emotions for the user on the other end. It's a little creepy sometimes. You could be like, okay, say this angry now or be a little bit more direct. And then you could see how it could shift modes like that. I totally agree. Again, just to move this onto the plus side, let's say instead of it coming to you and saying, I think there's a problem here, it would be nice to be able to go to these machines and say, hey, I'm having a problem. How can you solve it? And says, okay, can I look at your chat history? Can you send me a picture of yourself? Then it can all of a sudden make all these inferences that a human couldn't. And then also give recommendations that are more specific than what a human can. It would be very nice. I still think we need a human in the loop for all these things though. Yes, that's good news for humans is that there's a lot of talk, I think understandably so, over the last few years about how AI could be super disruptive to multiple industries in terms of replacing humans with AI when it comes to a whole multitude of jobs. I mean, my wife is in the WGA and they recently had a nearly six month long strike in large part because of the threat of AI when it comes to replacing writers. And you see similar things happening with the recently ended SAG strike, but this could apply to a whole host of industries, many of them creative logistical, legal, et cetera. But I think perhaps the silver lining is that humans are going to have to be involved (laughs) for a long time to come, no matter how good the AI gets, because of many of the reasons we've talked about today, many of the imperfections within AI. On the website for your podcast, Local Maximum, again, Local Max Radio for anyone interested, and I highly recommend it because Max talks not only about many of the topics we've discussed today, but also social problems, ways to solve some of society's ills. One thing I would recommend is Max has some great ideas about how to fix our constitution and some of the problems we have with our Senate, which I would highly recommend. And I will link that paper in our show notes. But when you're talking about how you came to name your podcast, The Local Maximum, you said, quote, the phrase local maximum is a mathematical term, and it refers to a point at which you need to step down in order to reach new heights, end quote. I'd love for you to end this conversation with explaining that last part, stepping down in order to reach new heights, how you've applied that to your own work and how you think it's applicable everywhere. Yeah, it's something that is sometimes frustrating when you're trying to reach a goal is that sometimes you optimize and you realize, oh man, I'm climbing the wrong hill here. I need to climb that other hill over there. And that's something that is very clear to anyone who does statistical research and machine learning research where you're often training these models. And when you say, oh, it got stuck in a local maximum, or sometimes you say a local minimum because you're trying to minimize some cost function or something like that. And it's like, well, a lot of the way these algorithms work is through something called gradient descent, which just means that, hey, I have a solution to this problem. I'm looking around to the solutions that are very similar, and I'm going to take a step in the direction that improves my solution. Okay, I get better and better. And then all of a sudden you reach the top of the hill, and then you're like, okay, there's nowhere for me to go. So I'm just going to say this is the best solution. But oftentimes, it's not the best solution. Oftentimes, you have to run it several times. You have to go down and search elsewhere. That's why AI is so hard. If there was no local maximum, it would mean that we could just create a very complicated machine learning algorithm or statistical algorithm and then just have it run and just have it get better. And then it would just be a lot easier. One thing you realize is this is true in a a lot of different things. This is true in product design, for example. Henry Ford, Model T, where he said, well, if I asked the customer what they wanted, they would want a faster horse, when really what you need is a full paradigm shift to the automobile. And so progress is never in a straight line. There are countless setbacks along the way. And I know I sometimes, even though my podcast is named The Local Maximum, sometimes when I hit a setback, it's very jarring for me. It's very hard to accept it. It's very hard to deal with it. And then you just have to think about, okay, well, this is a local maximum. This is part of searching for the solution to your problem, whatever it is, whether it's in your career or life or or anything like that. One of the things that I've really come to appreciate and admire about you, Max, is I would say a major through line of your life is your curiosity and specifically how that curiosity translates into action. 
how you apply it in your life. Again, through your work, through your podcast, through your labs and sharing that curiosity. And as it translates from curiosity to information and knowledge, how you share that with other people. So thank you so much for your work. And thanks so much for taking the time with us today to share some of that work with us. Thank you so much. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts.